0: Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's
1: turn it over to Ferd Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Ferd Neiman here again today. I've got another great guest with me. This guy is the co-founder of one of the top 50 mobile home park owner-operators in the country. They've got 33 parks, five states, uh, really really high asset parks as well, big big, uh, footprint on the West Coast. Please help me welcome our welcome our guest, Daniel Weisfield. Daniel, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, for This is fun. Yeah, great man. Well, I know a little bit about you. I know you've got a pretty good presence online and social media as well. But for those that are not familiar with you, tell us a little bit more about your background. Uh, you're smarter than me, and that you, you're a lawyer, but you're not practicing. You figured that out. So I, I know you're a lawyer, but uh, you don't really. You spend your day job obviously uh, running mobile home parks at Three Pillars Community. So tell us a little more. Yeah. So I. Um... Fortunately, I
2: got that lot of grit. I never practiced. I feel very (laughs) grateful for that decision. Um, I co-founded Three Pillar Communities in 2017. Uh, We're a top 50 owner of mobile and parks in the U.S., as you mentioned. Um, How I got into it, actually I had a family background. My family immigrated to the United States from Israel. Um, My mom was born on a chicken farm in Israel, so was my grandfather. I came to the U.S., you know, with nothing. My grandfather had to put food on the table, so he started buying wrecked cars and fixing them in his backyard and selling them, and eventually saved up enough to open a garage, and eventually saved up enough to buy a mobile home park. Uh, sure. So that was in Seattle. He bought his first park about thirty-five years ago. Um, and as a kid, I'd go help him—you know, mow the lawn, paint the fence, take out the trash—you know, hands-on wow. owner-operator stuff. He was a farm boy, right? That, that's how he ran his business. Sure. Um, and you know, he saved money and he bought another one. And so my family starting from a very humble roots was able to build a small portfolio of parks that they operated really as mom and pops, right? Mom and pop operators. Um, and I did not think that was gonna be my path in life. When I was a little kid, I didn't dream of one day being a mobile home park investor. I had other ambitions and aspirations. So I, I actually worked as a US diplomat for a few years. Okay. I got a law degree, I got an MBA. I worked in the corporate world. Um, company called mckinsey doing management consulting for big companies and really a few years back i realized the incredible opportunity in this space right that mobile home parks are such an important source of affordable housing for so many americans and are really good recession-proof business as an investor Um, and so when i had that realization i realized the family business is actually a really good business to be in Um, and i partnered up with uh, my business partner in 2017 we founded our company um, and since then, we've been really fortunate. We we syndicate our deals. We bring in money from outside investors, um, and we've you know we've done about 20 deals uh, in the past three years. And then we fee manage my family's legacy portfolio. So collectively, it's about 33 parks in five states. We focus on the Western U.S. and we're vertically integrated. At this point, we have around 50 employees, creating value through acquisitions, asset management property management, and manufactured home sales.
1: Okay, great. So yeah, I was gonna, that's what I was going to ask you on your, your family's legacy property. So you, those are still in the family. Those are still in the business. That's great. You know,
2: still in the family. And, and it's funny when I, you know, when I got into this space and convinced them, hey, let me fee manage your properties. Um, you know, I discovered so many skeletons in the closet. It's like anytime mm-hmm. we go, you've seen this all the time for yeah. anytime you go buy a park from mom, pop operator, and you see that, you know, they're. <laughs> they're actually keeping the books and records or not oh, keeping the books and records and how they're actually collecting rents or not collecting rents i realized that that was my family's assets that was us until four yeah. years ago and that we've right. been fortunate to professionalize a lot of that stuff
1: okay hey, that, that's great yeah that's that's part of the, the fun and not so much fun of buying deals from mom pa's yeah I, I had a guy he he owned three parks and like 50 rental properties and i asked for the financial records for this park that i was trying to buy and he said here you go and they were all in the same checking account his personal account i was like well i can't tell if the collections are good i know you got it mixed in there he's like well i told you i'd give it to you and it came with 24 park owned homes he gave me a mm-hmm. box with 30 titles and said pick 24 he had no idea which they were which ones were which he was a mover he brought all these in over here like yeah i don't care and we're like are you kidding me and he seriously gave us. he gave us and i have 30 titles and we had to max mix and match them and and they didn't all match up. It was crazy, huh. but yeah. So I've seen it. For, I've seen it for sure as well. But yeah, that's great. Now, one thing that yeah. caught my eye about you a couple months back on LinkedIn, you had indicated the the sales price or the market price of the homes in your in your, I think in Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, t- tell it. And you know, I invest in the Midwest, and a lot of my clients are you know even Southeast. Yeah, entirely different world than the MHP. Park yeah. and and home valuation. Tell us what what is what is a, a nice double wide sell for in one of your communities?
2: Yeah, I've been looking forward to talking to you about this and <laughs> trying to figure. Let's let's do the battle of the West versus the East yeah. and figure out what's the better market to invest in. Because I think that there's pros and cons. Sure. Right? Um, so let's talk about the ho- manufactured homes first, and then maybe we, we can transition to talk about actual parks and park values. So on the home side, um, I'd say in most of our markets kind of a used 1970s single-wide trades between 15,000 and 30,000, depending on the park. Wow. Used older double-wides would be maybe kind of 40, 50,000 on average. Again, depending on the park and the location. Um, for us to bring it, you no, know, we're really active in bringing in new homes into our parks. In my view, that's the single best way you can upgrade a park. Sure. Right? Just replenishing the housing stock. So uh, when we bring in a new single-wide, our minimum cost to get that thing built in the factory and hauled over to the park and installed is around 60,000 for a single wide. Okay. Um, and our minimum cost to get a double wide installed is around 80,000. Oh, wow. And the sale value of that double wide, you know, in most of our markets, we can sell it for around 85, 90,000 kind of break even that's kind of, you know, middle of the road markets, you know, not hot markets. And then, In certain markets, like an example is Ukiah, California. It's a little place in Mendocino County, a lot of agriculture, a lot of housing demand, not a lot of supply. So in that market, we can sell that double wide for 150 or 160,000. And then in really prime markets like San Jose, California, which is where Google headquarters is coming in and other tech companies, you can sell that double wide for 300,000 in a park.
1: It's unbelievable. I've bought a park, I've bought parks for less than 300000 <laughs> I love <laughs> not it. Not I love joking. it. And, not even yeah. joking. That's great, man. Yeah.
2: And, and to me, that's part of the, you know, California and other West Coast markets have such an intense affordable housing crisis. Sure. And this to me is the magic of what we're doing. That, you know, the cost of one of these homes is 90000 So you can sell a double-wide break even for 90000 even in these prime markets like San Jose, where you're not going to get, a, you know, a single family house for under half a million bucks.
1: All right. No, it's great yeah so, just... so
2: the, the, so the downside so the upside of that is residents take care of their houses it's a real investment right and they're right. very they're very sticky uh, the downside is um, in some of our more marginal markets it can be hard to break even and sell a sell a home for 90k right right and like you know some of our agricultural markets for example in the California Central Valley most of those AG workers um, are happy to buy a used home for 20 30 40 thousand but it's a stretch to get them to buy a new home for 80 or 90.
1: Got it. No, that makes sense. I mean, it's interesting. I was looking at a park the other day and it had, I think it had 14 park on homes. So I was trying to put that in my valuation on top of the land. Like, what am I going to pay for these homes? And how I valued them 70s homes, thousand bucks. 80s, 5,000. 90s, early 90s, 10,000. Late 90s, 15, 2000s. I'm in the 20s, 2010s, maybe 30. Maybe thirty thousand, so um, considerably so less to me. Considerably how do you um,
2: How do your financials work? If you assign a value of a thousand dollars to an old nineteen seventy single wide, um, what would your actual replacement cost be to bring in um a comparable used home?
1: Mm, used homes that old are pretty hard to transport. A lot of the movers won't even do it. Like I bought a nineteen eighty five, um, and I had to transport it ninety miles. It mm-hmm. took me six or seven movers before I got one guy to do it and he required me to re-weld the frame and re-shingle the roof. So pff, that, that, that was a pain, right? So I would, I would typically never bring in a 70s, 80s. If you bring them within two or, three, two or three hours away, you're probably talking five grand transport and install. And then whatever the cost of the home is, the home is probably six. I think that home I bought, I paid 7,500 for. By the time I shipped it, installed it, utilities, New roof, deck. Um, I think I had to put an air conditioner in there. I was in for about seventeen five, all in. Wow. Now okay. I put it apart. Yeah, we'd be double that. But then, yeah, so what
2: kind of then what rents are you getting on that home once it's installed? Uh,
3: that home I rented for like eight twenty five, and then the lot rent was three fifty. So I mean, the mm-hmm. lot's still occupied. The lot's worth thirty five thousand. So it was a good investment. to mm-hmm. bring, in, bring in a home at half the cost, and I sold the home at cost. So you know, it's a net. You know, it's it's an infill lot. Um, yeah, used home.
1: Five years ago, I'd never even mm-hmm. bought a new. I'd never even bought a new home. Used was better. In the last two and a half years, used homes are exceptionally difficult to find yeah. and to source. I used to be able to go on Craigslist. There'd be ten houses. Yeah. My first part. This is 2014. I had I spent I spent ninety thousand dollars, and I got fifteen homes out of it. Because what I would do is I'd I'd buy I'd go on Craigslist. I'd see ten. I'd mm-hmm. buy, I'd look at the one I want and I'd buy it for $10,000. Yeah. it in, I'm in for 13, renovate them at 18. I'd sell uh-huh. it for 18 and I'd recycle the same 18,000. So I used, uh-huh. I, did, I had could do about five houses and that was all the money I had available for that project. But I'd recycle it and I end up doing 15 or more lots and then, you know, increase the value of the, the park by several hundred thousand dollars. But today, if I go on Craigslist to find that used home, I'm going to find three of them. They're all going to be garbage and they're going to want 15000 for them. Yeah. Um, it's, just, it's just that competitive. And we've talked to movers and, you know, if I've, if I've had movers i bought homes for, bought five or six homes from one guy and paid him to okay. install them, paid them to do the concrete, yeah. paid him, to sh- And said, hey, give me your list, man. I'll take care of you. And he said, somebody else already offered me $20,000 over whatever I pay to find them the homes. $20,000 referral fee. As a finder's fee. Wow. So I can't compete with that. The economics don't make it doesn't make much sense for me um yeah. i'd rather just go get a new home and you yeah. a new home and they print them at the factory
2: let me ask you a question so i'm derailing your podcast but <laughs> it's I, all right i just I, I, question might make you uncomfortable to answer on air so i'm curious how <laughs> do you feel about um buying a home from a resident that's located in somebody else's park and pulling it out and putting it in your park
1: we don't we don't i don't like it we don't do it um yeah. I, I had somebody try to do it once to me. I had somebody do it twice to me. And I got an anti-poaching sign. I think I told this story on my, one of my podcasts. I got an anti-poaching sign on the front and I got a first right of refusal in the lease. And I had a dealer call me and say, uh, I called my dad actually, because his dad knew him, and, and like a real dealer. The guy has a showroom and sells a yeah. thousand homes a year. And it was a big, pretty big size dealer. And we bought some homes from him and good guy. My friends, he called and said, Hey, I, I just bought a home in your park. I, and I'm not going to get it out before the end of the month. So I wanna, what's your lot rent? I want to make sure I get you paid your lot rent. And he said, I'm not going to say his name, but hey, anyway, we're, we're not going to, we don't want to move out. He, they said, did you see the sign out front? He was like, well, go, why don't you go drive by again? There's a sign out front. It says any home to be moved in or out of this park, any more applicant needs to be approved by management prior to home being sold or moving. So you were on constructive notice right out front. And every entrance next, I got to sign and I said... That puts you on notice that maybe there's a different provision. And now the guy that owned the house died. So his son inherited, his son didn't know about the lease, didn't care about the lease. He just called the dealer, said, I want 10 grand. This home was appraised at 38,000. Hmm. New home. And this guy was pulling it out of there. And I said, you're going you're gonna to be in the middle of a lawsuit if you pull that thing out of here. I said, but I'll pay you a couple thousand dollars for your a referral fee for finding it for me. Mm-hmm. And we'll card friends. And he said, okay. So that sign... That sign made I, I made fifteen thousand dollars selling that house, so that was my, that sign's worth fifteen grand to me. I've had that happen a couple different times. Um, that provision in my lease, I, I, I start to price stuff. their they had like that's a hundred thousand. I just found a hundred thousand dollars because of this one provision or because it's one item. So, anyway, we don't post from other people if they tried to us. It's going to be a problem, um, and we'll, we'll probably would do it back. I've had to um, make that maneuver once, but mm-hmm. um, I particularly don't do it to guys bigger than me because um, it could be a problem. But like a park I've got, one park I've got is right down the street from uh, a park that Sun owns, RHP, mm-hmm. and then Strive. So three pretty okay. big, three pretty big players yeah. within, within a mile of me, and and I probably could have poached some of their homes, but I didn't feel like I'm doing it back now. Um, so we just we just don't, right? So I did have one organic move in from one of their parks, and we just called and hey, this person's leaving. They're like, yeah, we don't care. So yeah. I tried to part friends. So anyway, that's that's how we do it. Um, and I think, it's the best, I think that's the best way to do it in the industry because otherwise it's just a zero-sum game. Exactly,
2: exactly. turns into an arms race. So everyone needs to observe observe the ethical
1: rules as an operator. Yeah, I mean, I again, the one benefit that we've had in, in that regard, as well as like this, this park that I'm talking about in Kansas City with these other big guys next door, um, there are three types of homes in the park. There are the old homes that have been there forever that are not movable. So they're not, the, the, the tenant's own. So, yeah. so, those are, so those ones are no realistic threat. There's a second type of home that there's about 20 of them that are nice, like 90s, 2000s that came with the park. So I mm-hmm. own them and they're rentals. So those aren't going anywhere. And there's a third type of home. Those are people that bought the homes from me and used 21st mortgage for their financing. Mm-hmm. And there are restrictions on them being able to be moved until the first 36 payments are made. So, So practically those homes can't move either. And I, I had a form in the, in the 21st mortgage packet, which I just, I had my form says that I get access to your, I can basically call 21st mortgage and check in on your balance. I can call 21st mortgage and, and I can put a provision that you can't move the home until that uh, recourse option, they call it a repurchase obligation, the 21st, mm-hmm. until that burns off. It can't be moved. So mm-hmm. practically, you can't poach for me. And I got that sign out front and on, in the back. And I, as I tell you to say, and I still don't go poach from the other guys. That as a matter of principle. But I, I could go push from them because they don't have those steps in place because they're such, yeah. a, big an, they're such a big animal. They're not watching yeah. the minutiae like I am.
2: So let me ask you another question. I, I'm seeing the way you think, right? You are a you are applying a lawyer's mind to MHP operations, <laughs> right? And right. figure out all <laughs> sorts of savvy stuff, uh, how to protect risk. What, what are the other like one or two uh, savviest innovations you've come up with either in terms of lease provisions or PSA provisions or other things that you've used your lawyer's mind to create value for yourself as an
3: operator? Hmm. I don't know if want to give away my sauce. Um,
2: All no,
3: right. Sorry I, about you. All No, right. I'm kidding. Uh, well, there's there's, yeah, you, you know, you know, as a lawyer, the, the, the worst thing about law school is you got to go to law school. The best thing about law school is they teach you how to think. And, and, yeah. and, and I already had, you know, two college degrees and had done well in school and done well in work. I went to law school when I was like 28 or 29, and mm-hmm. law school taught you how to think differently. So, um, I think kind of paranoid. I say, you know, my, my job is to, is to worry. And then I think what could go wrong? So, for example, um, my inspection period in my contract, it, it, be, it most people's inspection period begins like on the day of the contract or five days after. My inspection yeah. period begins after
1: I receive the later of title, survey, and the 45 items on Exhibit D, some of which the seller- and your sellers agree to that they they do but if they don't i have additional provisions that there's things that are outside of my control that are things like the, the timing uh, and the in the result of the phase 1 the survey the appraisal and the insurance company giving me a binder of insurance so i, I have in my contract even in in an in instance that is after the expiration of the inspection period in the event of one of those four circumstances if if i get an unsatisfactory result I can drop the contract and get a refund on my earnest money, which means practically, and this is, this is worth 100 days, and practically, if I don't have a survey in my possession, can I be satisfied with it? Of course not, I need to see it, which means I don't have to order my survey until the last day of my inspection period. In a table A Alta survey with 10 items, it's gonna take six, eight weeks. So I just bought myself six or eight weeks now, I can't drop the property if the survey comes back good, but what I bought myself is six more weeks to go raise capital on a syndication. I bought myself is more time to do market research, more time to find new homes, more time to hire a manager, more time just to. Uh, I've got five deals under contract right now. I know some of those are not going to close in the next 100 days, but I'm building a pipeline by having a strategic timeline. So that, that's one example of things that I've uh, been able to. And, and if you put it in one spot in the contract, it, wide open, and you put it in one spot in the contract, it's kind of the you know, fine print. Yeah, people will sometimes see. Okay, cool, it's in here. Like I want, and they forget what the second one. Is. Like that was a duplicative provision. You st- you redlined one of them. Mm-hmm. Why'd you do that? So,
2: so I mean, what what you're describing sounds to me as like something I would never be able to get with a seller, right? The sellers I deal with would push back on that all day long. So you rely on do. sellers who aren't represented by counsel, or you're saying,
1: oh, well, here's what I'm. Mean. You're you're right. Some sellers yeah. don't. So if you're representing, if you're, I'm, on a, I'm working on a, as a, as the lawyer, I'm working on a case for an eight part portfolio right now. And the seller has very competent legal counsel and they, they redline half of those, most of those things actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm dealing with a guy on a 14 part portfolio and the guy just insisted on using the standard realtor contract and then allowed us to make an amendment to it with my key mm-hmm. provisions and he just signed it. And he had a lawyer, but he, the lawyers, he, if you get a gent- lawyer, it's a generalist, you know, if somebody's website says I do divorce, speeding tickets, DUI, and I'm a real estate lawyer. Yeah. You got the wrong real estate lawyer, right? Yeah. So if you're buying higher dollar properties, you know, you, they're probably going to get, um, be represented by qualified competent counsel. But you know, that's just some of the examples. I'll ask you the same question. What do you, what do you do? What, what, what tips can you share? You know, not just in the contracts as a lawyer, but what tips can you share on how you guys operate and how you, um, you know, build a creative a bit, um and a creative advantage for yourself, if you will.
2: I think the biggest creative advantage we have is how we analyze acquisitions and how flexible and creative we are when looking at deals. Because you know, a lot of our competitors have a box. I only buy fifty-five and up, or I only do city utilities. You know, and a lot of people come out of the Frank and Dave Mobile Home University course, right? And they've got they've kind of learned uh, a defined buy box right? Which is everybody else who goes to Mohon University is also looking for. It right. basically means you need to have like 100 Walmarts within five miles of your park um, <laughs> and if you need a median home price of I think 500,000 or something crazy. Yeah. So, um, and we, you know, it's hard to find deals, right? It's hard sure. to find deals, period, in this space. It's a hot asset class. The days of this being undiscovered are long over. There's all right. sorts of sophisticated money in this space. Um, so, you know we've been able to close roughly 20 acquisitions in three years um and the way we've been able to do that is by being creative and we've bought some beautiful class a parks at sub four caps and we've bought middle of the road class b workforce housing and we've bought some really rough class c turnarounds in rv parks you know on private well and private septic systems and so we just we, we price risk and return specific to each deal Right? We try and look at each deal for what it, what, what it is and make a, kind of, uh, a risk-return risk decision. Uh, sure. So I say that's the biggest way we've been creating value. And then on the operations side, we've spent a lot of time building a real operating company right, with a culture and spending really a lot of time defining our values, hiring the right people, and getting them to understand what we believe in and how that translates to actions in the business so that it, we don't have to rely on an operations manual. Right? you don't need to go look at the rule book. People, people have an intuitive understanding of what's the right decision to make.
1: No, that's great. Yeah, we we have a similar operating ethos, if you will, is just, you know, how what's the right thing to do? Do which do what you say you're going to do and do the right thing, and then it's pretty easy, right? Um, yeah. I'm interested on that. You say sub four cap. I've never bought a park at a sub. I guess I bought one park at a zero cap. It was at negative NOI, but I bought it because it had 50 vacant lots and I it needed yeah. to be turned around. When you're when you're buying Class A park. I'm assuming it's stable and there's not a lot of opportunity for infill. Definitely. So, so how does, how are you making that work economically? Do you just have a, a lower yield requirement for your investors? Because it's, it's it's almost like a, almost like a, you know, Coca-Cola is not going to double in size this year, but Coca-Cola is also not going to go out of business. So is it just a lower yield requirement, like a dividend uh, coupon, clipping deal or, or what, what's the play there? I used to own like some triple net stuff and that, and, you know, it's coupon clipping for the investors on that but it's, but it's yeah. you know walgreens isn't going to miss the rent payment either so it's there's just yeah. it's, it's that, that risk reward analysis as you say
2: yeah so i would say um if you're looking at an institutional quality park in the western united states um you know the cap rate range is three and a half to four and a half percent for it. anything that's over 100 lots city utilities decent market right um and the really nice stuff like you know Highly amenitized, so you have enough communities are kind of in that three and a half to four cap range. Um, and yes, I think investors have rightfully seen that these parks stay full all the time and that they cash flowed through the 08, 09 recession, they've cash flowed through COVID, you're buying a bond. Um, and I would say you get a bond like return in terms of cash flow, but there probably is more upside than a triple net deal um, because I think the industry as a whole is getting more attractive and more institutional. And I think most investors project cap rate compression, right, over the next decade or so. So, you know, I'm not, so the the groups buying those are, you know, operators like Carlisle, Carlisle Group, Blackstone, um, you know, groups partner with life insurance companies. And I think most of them are probably underwriting, you know, IRRs in the 8% to 10% range Okay. for those types of deals, you know, when you apply leverage and when you have rent growth and when you look at your kind of exit cap
1: rate assumptions. Yeah. That's what I assumed It's just, I just haven't, yeah. i not messed with those myself, but yeah, it's like, yeah, you're, you're not going to hit your, your mid teen IRR when you're buying. No, a exactly. Cap rate. And
2: this is, and for, this is something that has been a real journey for me. And I'd be curious to get your thoughts. You know, you, you and I both go to the mobile home park conferences and we kind of, you know, there's a lot of institutional money trying to get in the space,
0: Sure.
2: right? And so a lot of people come to me and they say, hey, you're a highly qualified operator. We know we're looking to partner and we're looking for mid-teen IRRs. And I'm like, all right, I'm not your guy. Like <laughs> no one in the Western US is getting mid-teen IRRs on parks unless maybe you're, you know, you have a, unless you're buying parks kind of in the kind of 10 space to 30 space range that are very small right. and it's hard to scale the business. Right. Like market cap rates, like I said, in our markets are kind of in that, Three and a half to four and a half percent range for really nice assets, and for middle of the road stuff, you know, up to a five cap. So, you know, IRRs in our markets are like kind of ten to twelve percent at the deal level based on our underwriting. Um, and so, it's it's really interesting. Like, these are not the stereotypical, you know, cash machine assets, you know, that are you know that are that you used to be able to get when this was more of a fringe asset class, right? That's been my experience. But I'd be curious. It seems like you in the Midwest, you're still getting. Uh, it seems like some really impressive returns based on your strategy.
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, we're in a different market than you, but yeah, I, honestly, I would, um, if I ever had a deal that had less than 15 IRR net to the investors, I would, I'd be embarrassed to take it to the investors. Um, we're, we're, we're going for, I just put caps on some ideas where now it's 25 and 30 IRR. And these are, these are business plans that I'm signing recourse notes on that I'm putting my reputation on the line for that I'm going to, I'm going to deliver on. And you can't do that on a stabilized property as easily. So like we just bought one here in the Kansas City market, it's 36 pads, but it's only got 24 occupied. So, okay, I can sell 12 homes that market and I'm not even, and I'm not, I could do it in one year, probably, I perform it two years, it's six homes mm-hmm. a year. I, we're, mm-hmm. we're gonna do that. We sold at, park at the same market, we sold 50 in two years. So, yeah. you, know, that's the, you know, that deal is gonna have an IRR that's over. If I sold it right now, the IRR would be triple digits. That's going to be taking the value from a million two to four million, right? So I got another deal we're closing here in about two weeks in the St. Louis market. It's at 95% occupancy. Okay, I can't double the value of that, right? I can I can, I can, can maybe squeeze 5% occupancy. I can maybe squeeze five, 10% rents. I can maybe de- decrease the operating expenses a couple points, but that's really, that's a longer term play. But I got good debt on it. And I got, um, it's going to got a 3.24% interest rate, 25 year ammo. I chose a recourse note over a Fannie Mae note because Fannie Mae currently has COVID reserve. It's another 200K. I'll have to raise another 200K. It's going to hurt the yield. And instead, I'll sign the note. I don't care. You know, it's lots of other notes. And again, I got my local bank to match the Fannie terms, by the way, but without the COVID. So that makes the cash flow still strong. Well, it's
2: 25-year ammo probably with minimal interest only, right? Or as Fannie would do IO.
1: Fannie would have more IO and Fannie would have 30. Yeah. So the plan is going to be on that deal is, get the, get the last three lots 67 lots, get the last three lots filled, get the rents up to market. They're about 95% there, 90%. There's a little saw, and I can support an eight pref and then, you know, double digit cash on cash and then IRR in the 17 range.
2: So what's the end game of your business? Like you're, you're buying these high yielding parks, but deal size is small relative right. to what I'm used to seeing, right? $1 million deal, $2 million deal. Right. So I'm curious, like, do you need to keep buying 10 parks a year in order to support the overhead of your headquarters staff? Oh, no,
3: I, no, not at all, actually. I can, mean, I, I could. my, my staff is lean. You know, I got like 12 people and besides, you know, vendors and contractors. I mean, I can, when you deal, 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 when you do a deal with these metrics. I can live on one deal a year. Now I'm doing more than one deal a year. I can live live well on two deals a year, three deals a year. So now um, the the, the end game is these deals, most of these are off market, by the way. I mean, you know, I've never paid below a seven cap. I've paid 15 cap, Um, even the deals I have in our country right now, none of them are below a seven cap. Um, So when you get debt terms, this deal is like a 7.9 and I got a 3.24% interest rate. That's a lot of spread. You can create a, you can do a better yield like that. And this is a great, great market. Um, so the end game, eventually I, I, I may roll them up into a fund, but right now they're, some of them are just me and my dad. Some of them I've got um, investors in. So I'd have yeah. to, that be more complicated to roll them up, but for diversification may do that. Um, but I'd love to buy $20 million parks, but the yield is so much less because they're so competitive, right?
2: Yeah.
3: I don't have an investor pool big enough or, Conservative enough that would go for the the eight IRR. Um, yeah. So that's that's okay. so I'm not chasing those deals. I can't. So I I've I bought some deals on market. I think I probably bought, I don't know, three or four deals on market. But that's not going to be the norm, and I, I can't I can't compete on price because I can't I can't raise money on five cap deal. At least at least oh. I haven't tried. I don't think I can. I haven't yeah. tried it, frankly. But yeah. yeah.
2: How, how much cap rate spread are you getting? Um, from sourcing off market. Because I I will tell you, in my experience, 90% of our deals are off market, right? Almost, almost nothing we've bought has been marketed. Um, But we're buying off market and we're still buying at four or five caps, right? Because at least in in our markets, you know, um, every mobile home park owner gets three calls a week from a broker trying to buy their park or someone who went to Frank and Dave's class and sending them postcards. Sure. And, you know, they know the value of what they're sitting on. And so for us, buying off market is an opportunity to acquire an asset, which we're excited about, but you know, we're not, we're not stealing it. Um, so I'm curious, how does that translate to your market in terms of cap rates that you're paying?
3: Well, I mean, from a, you're talking spread from on market to off or spread from the interest rate to the acquisition rate?
2: So I mean, from on market to off, like if you're paying seven or eight caps, if they were marketed, oh. would they also be seven or eight caps? No, That's no, they, no, they wouldn't, no,
3: they wouldn't be. I, the spread is going to be at least 150 bps. Um, okay. And in some cases
1: more. Um, yeah, in some cases, 300 or 400, you know, it depends yeah. on what you do. With the deal, we have a deal right now in Nebraska, we just got under contract. They didn't even counter our offer. We just made an offer, and they're like, we paid to it, and, and we're buying it at like a 10 cap. Now it's in a smaller market. Um, it's got upside too, it's got it's a 100 plus lots, it's about half full, and 10 cap on current, like, not even no pro forma, all that. Now, yeah. the deal in Iowa we bought a couple months ago. Des Moines, Iowa was really competitive. So on yeah. market, we bought it off. We actually bought it on market, but this we got lucky on this one. It was listed as development ground. It's 20 acres of land adjacent to nice neighborhoods. Huh. It, was listed, it was listed with the land broker a national company. Yeah. And, and yeah. we're like, we'll keep the mobile home park too. Right. And they're like, yeah, yeah. It, you can scrape it. You can build houses here. <laughs> like, no, no, we like that. <laughs> the, the mobile, like, so they're just crazy. The mobile home park, yeah. Is where it was appraised at like 150,000 more than we bought the whole assemblage for, and we have 12 acres excess ground. So, yeah, it was on the market as a park or sell it off. Um, redevelop, I, I, I've talked to city about expanding it, and they're not that jonesed about it. So, what I'm probably going to do is just land bank it, and then in, this is a this is a, probably a shorter term hold for me. I'll probably sell this park in a couple years yeah. once it's once it's 100% occupied because the market's so good. And there's not a lot more upside on it, small park. Um, but then I'll uh, just keep the land and wait till the residential developer wants to buy it 20 years from now. Yeah,
2: look, I know we should wrap up, but let me ask you another question.
1: Can I? Are we sure. okay go on time? Ahead. Go, go ahead, ahead. no, All go right. ahead.
2: So I got a question for you as a dumb Californian. <laughs> here's, my, here's my dumb Californian question. I understand um, the growth story and the demographics to buy in markets like Des Moines, Iowa, or Omaha, Nebraska, or Indianapolis, or St. Louis, or Kansas City, or Chicago in the suburbs, I get that. Um, But I see listings for parks in like, you know, rural Illinois or rural Kansas, um, that looks like they're half full. And I Google it, it looks like it has, you know, negative population growth, you know, Main Street got boarded up and most of the, you know, the young kids have moved to the city. Um, And it sounds like you're buying those deals and getting killer returns. I'm not, I, buy, I,
3: I'm not buying a lot of those deals. Uh, yeah. Here's where I'll buy them is that if I get it at a price that I can't say no to. And I think it's an extra. So I've got a park in Illinois that's it's not that rural. It's 20,000 people, but it's in a metro that's got two 40,000 towns and a 50,000 town within like 30 minutes of it. So in right, a, within right. an hour, okay. 100,000 people.
1: Yeah. I bought, I bought that at a 15 cap. So on market. First day, first day, full price. Um, mm-hmm. But, but I, could, I couldn't sell it at eight, but I could sell it at a 9.5 tomorrow. So mm-hmm. I, it's kind of like you're saying risk-reward on your forecast. I just do risk-reward on the same tertiary market. And then kind of like you guys get creative on, you know, some of your financing or uh, utility structures and things like that. Yeah, I'll, I'll look at a specific town, like my hometown of Quincy, Illinois. It's a great trade area, but it's only 45,000 people. But it's got mm-hmm. the hospital. It's got a jail. It's got, you know super walmart it's got the mall it's got the railroad business it's got um, lots of ag it's got a it's got a college it's got a junior college it's got the county that's city, the market i'd invest in right but it's only yeah. forty five thousand people you know yeah well then the recession hit the prices went down one percent the real residential so anyway that's um that's how we kind of spread it around some too but um Tell me one. Tell me. Tell me something else our listeners can learn for, for scaling. You've obviously got to build a lot of parks mm-hmm. in a in a relatively short period of time. So how are you scaling your staffing in particular? Because that's a, that's been a growing pain for me and I know some of my clients. Hey, we're trying to hire this and this, and it's like it's hard to get the right people. And turnover and training is can be the Achilles heel of a business. So, yeah. so what, what, what 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 tips can is, you share for with me? That is the most important thing
2: right getting the right people on the bus is the single most important thing that defines success or failure and it's at the headquarters level and it's at the asset level as you know very well right The kind of getting the right property manager is either you know makes your business plan succeed or tanks it uh, if they're not doing their job so we spend a lot of time um, developing hiring criteria and we really don't care about resume right we're tra- we're trying hard to screen for aptitude and we look for creative problem solving. We look for a customer service ethos. We look for an ownership mindset. Okay. And if you've got that, then you know, property management experience is, is immaterial. You can learn property management, it's not rocket science. Um, so we've had really good luck finding smart people who might not have had all the advantages in life. You know, A lot of people, I have several managers who are working a retail job for 10 bucks an hour and they responded to our ad and just knocked out of the park, right? I could see their aptitude. And we hire them, and change their lives. Right? They're now they're now in a managerial role, um, and on a growth trajectory. So that's been exciting at the property manager level, um, and the headquarters team. You know, this has been one of my biggest realizations. I used to think the bigger we got, the more parks we bought, my life would get more stressful because you'd have more work to do. The opposite is true. The bigger we get, the more revenue coming in, the more we can afford to hire good professional people, so I can duplicate myself.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: we now have a. Awesome director of operations we hired. She was one of our park managers, and she was, you know, knocking it out of the park. And we elevated her to be our director of operations. We hired someone to do business analytics. We had a Wall Street financial background, and she's helping us with all the investor reporting and the strategic projects. And just this week, we brought on our first director of facilities and capital projects, which is a game changer for me as the owner because I was doing all that stuff, yeah. right, dealing with bids and contracts, and <laughs> it's not—it's not my background. I don't yeah. know about it was, if the asphalt was done right, right, and uh, and I don't have time. And so it's, it's, it's liberating to have someone to be like, Hey Jack, that fencing project, can you handle that? He's like, yes, sir. Thank you, Jack. Yeah. <laughs> so, so
3: I would say the bigger you get, it actually gets easier. That's, that's great. That's great to hear. And it's, 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 hard to grow at times and growing things, but yeah, I have a guy just, I only got him half time. He owns his own park too. And he's, but I got him half time started about three weeks ago and he's been in the business like eight years. I'm like, Oh man, it's so great. You know, he's, doesn't need supervision. He can go supervise the contractor. He can go supervise the deal. It's like, man, this is, this is good. And has, has new ideas. So yeah, I'm with you that have, building the good team, building the right team is, is crucial for, for growth in particular, but crucial for success.
2: I also have a, a contrarian strategy for growth. And my contrarian strategy is I don't always try to hit home run deals. Mm-hmm. I am happy accepting deals that are good enough because we're, we're growing a portfolio, we're growing a business, we're growing an operating platform. And so, my bar for deals is are we going to hit our business plan that makes sense given the risk and return profile for this asset? And I don't necessarily need
3: to hit a mid teen IRR in every deal. Sure. Yeah. Different. That's a good point. I mean, like, um, it's kind of like growth stocks with value stocks. Back to stock. I mean, you know, when I I was doing stock stuff, Garmin's going to grow a double, triple. And now they're big enough. But I mean, you know, you're not going to double Anheuser-Busch right, yeah. in, a, in a given year, right? You're not, you're not supposed to there's a different risk reward profile. So yeah, that's kind of like, and in some degree, we're in different geographic portions of the country. So we're not competitors from a geography, but even if we were both in the same, we would not be competitors because we're looking for different return profiles and different right. risk profiles. So we would buy, right. there's a park a mile away from me, Sun owned it, and I, I would love to buy it, but it was a 500 unit park. So it attracted a different type of investor. And it sold at ai don't know what it sold at, but I'm, I'm sure a, a massive, massive premium. It was a great looking park, great clubhouse, great pool, basketball court, playgrounds, tennis court. I mean, it was great. So I'm sure it sold at a, you know, four cap or something. And that's a different investment. It was, I was a mile away from me. I already have headquarters. I already managed it. I already, you know, I already have maintenance right there, but it was just a different asset. Yeah. yeah. All
2: right. You know, fun. Yeah, I know. I, I know you said we were gonna we were gonna go fifteen or twenty minutes. It's been forty five. Yeah. So, Ferdy, you got anything else you want to ask me, or should we should yeah. we call it a wrap?
3: Well, luckily, I charge by the hour, so yeah,
2: uh oh, <laughs> no, 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 backwards. I'm charging you. I just I just donated forty five minutes of my time, so now I get a forty five minute credit for your legal fees.
3: Yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll see about that. Uh, yeah. We'll see how many referrals I get from this episode. Uh, Daniel's great. <laughs> where where can people find you or reach
2: you uh, after this? Um, so again, it's Daniel Weissfield. You can see us online at www.3pillarcommunities.com. Three is spelled out, 3pillarcommunities.com. And you'll see there's a little tab to click in the upper right, which is, you know, get on our mailing list. If you get on our mailing list, you'll see our deals, our updates, and it's, it's the best way to keep in touch.
1: All right. Sounds good.
2: Thanks, Daniel. This was fun. Thanks, for Talk to you soon. Right, bye now. Bye